Welcome to Politics and Science. Politics and Science can be heard weekly on WMRW LP Warren 95.1 FM, airing on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. and Sundays at noon. And in the Bellows Falls area can be heard on Wool LP Bellows Falls at 101.1 FM, airing from 3 to 4 p.m. on Sundays and from 9 to 10 a.m. on Mondays. Politics and Science presents the viewpoints of its participants and does not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of any other person or organization. Hi everyone, welcome to Politics and Science. Uh, today's show features a talk by Michael Hudson, an economist, and this is his presentation that he gave to the American Monetary Institute back in November of 2010. Uh, he has an unusual but logical perspective, and I thought the audience of Politics and Science would enjoy it. For more information about Michael Hudson, you can uh, go to michael-hudson, H-U-D-S-O-N, dot com. That's michael-hudson, dot com. I usually talk about financial reform and banking here, uh, but I think if we're going to go forward and you're going to get a wider audience for what you're talking about, you need to go beyond finance and beyond banking and talk about fiscal reform. You have to have a model of how the overall economy works in order to explain what your reform is going to do with the economy. That's what uh, the two uh, lectures yesterday did uh, by Steve Keane and by uh, the Japanese professor, working out an overall model. Without that overall model, you're going to be as obsolete as, oh, say, the Georgists that only talk about uh, uh, rent. So uh, it's sort of like, uh, well, earlier it came into the room, all they had was coffee, no milk. You can't have coffee without milk. I had to go out. That's the situation you are with financial reform without talking about uh, uh, tax systems and uh, other forms of reform. You need uh, the overall uh, system. And the overall system that most of you are plugged into uh, is basically to treat uh, the banks like financial intermediaries, like the savings banks uh, in the uh, that worked uh, until the 1980s and the SNLs. Uh, they had, in effect, 100% reserves. Uh, in the sense that they didn't create credit, their reserves were lent out in the form of uh, interest-yielding uh, loans, mainly mortgage loans. Now, uh, last week, uh, Jamie Galbraith and Randy Ray and I were down in Brazil uh, offering a proposal for how to uh, transform uh, their banking system. Uh, Jamie made the point that in the 1980s, a decision was made to end financial intermediaries. The savings banks were looted by insiders. The boards of directors simply took the reserves of the savings banks, gave them 10% to themselves, 90% to the Wall Street companies that uh, turned them into commercial banks, and uh, they were emptied out from uh, basically uh, uh, depositor-owned institutions into uh, Wall Street banks. Uh, the SNLs were uh, similarly changed. Uh, the lead uh, example is Charles Keating, whose uh, book was called Trust Me, and it's all based on trust. Uh, if, you, uh, if, if you're going to cheat someone, the first thing you've got to do is tell them, trust me. 
uh, to uh, lower his uh, uh, lower what he did. Essentially, the financial system was criminalized. Now, I, I like Steve Keen's uh, uh, circular flow uh, and method. I don't see any room for the criminals there. And without the criminals, you leave out. I mean, it's like Hamlet without. Uh, I won't say the ghost, but uh, it, it's the ghost that's not seen today, as my UMKC colleague uh, Bill Black points out. Uh, the other is military spending, uh, and it really comes down to uh, something more with uh, than just 100% reserves. Uh, the justification for the reforms that you're trying to bring about is what are banks going to lend for under a 100% reserve system, and what are they going to lend for uh, today? Now, uh, you remember yesterday when we had a discussion about Steve Keen's talk, uh, he went through the very beginning of his talk saying, if banks lend out uh, loans to uh, productive uh, investors, uh, investors who will take the loan proceeds and invest them and make a profit sufficient to repay the loan with the interest, then that is a model of self-feeding growth. That's the model that uh, classical economists talked about. It's the model you find in Marx's Capital. It's the, mar it's the model of a normally growing economy. The problem is uh, that that productive growth model is illegal in the United States. Banks don't make money to finance new capital investment. That's done by uh, venture capital and by the stock market. In this country, uh, banks only lend money against assets already in place. 80% of bank loans are mortgage loans against property already in place. The result is that uh, the credit-creating system, as it's structured in the uh, Anglo-American countries, is aimed at inflating asset prices. Uh, the loans are created in easier loan terms uh, to buy uh, real estate primarily. And what goes up is basically the value of uh, the site. It's not the buildings that grow up. It's the value of uh, the land and the uh, essentially uh, the site value. So uh, the value today of real estate, a company, stocks or bonds is however much a bank will lend. And uh, how much a bank will lend is a function not simply of the interest rate, that is the capitalization rate, to take uh, the cash flow uh, or the rental value of a property, you capitalize it into a loan. Uh, that was true in the 16th century. That's what William Petty and uh, uh, John Locke and the other people believe. The only people who believe that nonsense today are the uh, followers of Henry George who don't realize that the price of property, if it were fully capitalized, uh, would go bankrupt almost immediately under the following conditions. Uh, you take uh, uh, the average loans for generations made by savings banks in this country. First of all, you had to put down 30% of your, uh, uh, the purchase price in equity, the, uh, not 100% or 105% today. Secondly, the loans were self-amortizing over a period of 30 years. Uh, and third, you had to actually show uh, that you earned an income and were able to uh, repay the loan. Now, technically speaking, these mortgage loans for commercial, for uh, residential mortgages were not productive loans because buying a house did not in itself 
provide uh, the money to pay back. The uh, homeowner had to earn that surplus himself or herself by getting a job and setting aside money uh, for the jobs and essentially uh, paying the house instead of renting. So from the uh, mortgagee's point of view, the loan is productive because if they wouldn't have paid off the mortgage, they would have paid the same thing in rent. And equilibrium in the real estate market, and again we're talking about 80% of the commercial bank market, uh, was achieved uh, when you could buy a house essentially for the cost of renting it. Uh, and if the rent would not cover the, uh, the rental value would not cover the loan, then there was an excess of uh, price over the actual use uh, value or economic value uh, of the loan. Uh, that is exactly what's occurred since 1980. Once the government succeeded in abolishing the savings banks, in abolishing the savings and loan associations, there was only one uh, place that people could go to gain access to housing, and that was the commercial banks. The commercial banking system became essentially criminalized in the sense that, uh, well, the word, uh, the English language, uh, every year we have to go through this discussion, how has the English language been stretched uh, more? Uh, the word criminalized had a new synonym developed by John Reed at Citibank, stretching the envelope. Uh, that was, they would sort of do things that there were little gray areas, they would push and push, they stretched the envelope, first of all, lower and lower down payments. That meant that you could, uh, they, they called that widening the market uh, for, to uh, increase home ownership. Secondly, uh, instead of amortizing the loan over a period of 30 years, uh, they'd have no amortization. So the loan was very much like the old British consoles, uh, a permanent debt. Uh, the debt would never be repaid. Uh, you, it would simply uh, pay interest uh, over and over again. Uh, and third, finally, they, you had a separation of uh, the bank's uh, lending from the bank's uh, investment. Uh, this went with uh, the repeal of Glass-Steagall under the Democrats, uh, who almost always have led uh, the criminalization of banking. Uh, and uh, you had a, a separation between the banks and uh, the brokerage industry and the, uh, the uh, appraisal industry. Uh, and the purpose of segregating everything like the uh, neoliberals want to do and uh, break everything into functions is uh, the corporate shell prevents uh, a, a legal prosecution from uh, finding the connections and the interconnections that make what Bill Black calls control fraud. Uh, I don't have time to go over the legal aspects here, but if you look under Bill Black or the UMKC uh, economic blog, you'll have a discussion of what the control fraud is. And basically, the last uh, 30 years of American banking have seen uh, an enormous control fraud where the banks have knowingly uh, turned away from productive lending into what's best thought of as asset stripping. Uh, in asset stripping, uh, you have to uh, pay off the loan not by what you're able to earn, but either by what you earn elsewhere or else uh, a unique uh, uh, turn that was introduced basically by Alan Greenspan at the uh, Federal Reserve. Uh, what he, uh, he calls it wealth creation, and what the rest of the economy calls it is asset price inflation. He finds that if banks, if he could lower the rate of interest by flooding the market with credit, 
the rate at which a given property could be capitalized uh, for a given rent could be uh, raised further and further. For instance, uh, if you uh, have a, a $10,000 a year rental income uh, at 10%, this would be a $100,000 mortgage at 5%, uh, a $50,000 uh, double a $200,000 mortgage. By lowering the interest rate, you increase the amount of debt that banks can load down the property. So essentially, uh, the, the homeowners in America, and especially the commercial uh, property developers, acted very much like Brazil uh, and Latin America acted in the late 1970s. They simply added the interest onto the debt by borrowing the interest and uh, uh, by uh, against the increased value of their property. Now, uh, this is ag again what came out uh, uh, in Steve's report uh, model. Uh, it, it is like compound interest, and it does grow if the only way of uh, repaying the debts is to increase property by enough each year to uh, uh, to pay the carrying charges on the debt. Now, if you get rid of the amortization carrying charges, if you lower the interest carrying charges, and if you just loan the borrowers enough money to uh, pay this, then uh, you're able to stretch out what normally would be the cyclical downturn for much more. Uh, and th this came to an end in 2008, and. Uh, the only papers that really have been discussing this are the Financial Times uh, in London, uh, for some reason. The, it, at this point, everything collapsed, and Wall Street said, the poor people have cheated us. They said they could repay the loans, and they can't. This is, the whole capitalist system is resting on illiterate blacks. Uh, it's amazing. And they ran wings around us. They cheated us, and they broke down the economy. Never again. Uh, and so their idea of never again is today 90% of mortgage loans are insured by the U.S. government. So under uh, the uh, moniker of free uh, markets, you have a totally government-supported uh, mortgage market. Now, uh, it, this is about the closest thing to uh, uh, Steve's 100% uh, reserve in Chicago plan in practice that you could get. Uh, but he's going uh, but they don't really do it of course I mean here you have the government providing the credit just like you want uh, the banks leaving it out it's not what you had in mind exactly uh, there uh, uh, always be uh, I, I'm I am in support of what Steve uh, uh, is advocating and as I say later there's an election in Latvia today where uh, uh, we actually have a chance of uh, doing that. Uh, but whenever the government's involved, you have to be uh, very suspicious. Uh, I, I got to warn you somewhere about that. So uh, the, the problem is that we're, we're in the asset stripping phase of the economy today. It's, uh, it, it depletes the economy. Uh, and I've talked before here about debt pollution being very much like uh, uh, environmental uh, pollution. We're seeing the, the end of that whole cycle uh, that we're criticizing. And basically, uh, there have been two cycles since World War II, and we're entering the third now. The first cycle was from 1945 uh, to 1980. During all those years, interest rates came down. Or, I mean, interest rates rose steadily uh, from about 2% in 1945 up to 20% in 1980. That, uh, that was the highest since Mesopotamian times. Now, when you have rising interest rates, that means that you have 
a, a 35-year decline in the bond market. The bond market went down steadily because when you have the interest rates go up, the capitalization rate uh, goes down. Uh, you also had high marginal income tax rates. Uh, you had high wages, uh, and you had the highest period of growth uh, in uh, uh, the United States history. You had basically uh, the post-war recovery. What you had from 1980 to about 2008 was just the reverse. You had a steady decline in interest rates. That meant you had a constant boom in the bond market, uh, a constant uh, boom uh, in the stock market. Uh, you also had living standards come to an end. You'd think in every model you have, you'd think that when you lower interest rates, when you, uh, that all of this should have promoted a re-channeling of credit into productive industry. That didn't happen. You had uh, the real estate bubble. You had the economy turned into a bubble. Uh, you had uh, asset price inflation. You had, uh, under Clinton, a series of budget surpluses that meant if the economy were not to have a financial breakdown from a lack of the means of payment, from a lack of credit, then you had to have the commercial banks providing the purchasing power and the credit that uh, the government was no longer providing. This was a deliberate intention all over the world, to stop governments from running deficits so that the economy can increase its purchasing power only by the commercial banks creating uh, credit on their keyboards for nothing and raking off uh, the interest uh, and uh, portion of the capital gains uh, at the same time. Uh, in Europe, uh, the European Central Bank uh, led the uh, Maastricht reform, saying it is illegal for governments in Europe to monetize their debt. And this is why you have the crisis in Greece. It's why you have the crisis uh, spreading over Europe. And it's why on Wednesday you had anti-austerity labor uh, uh, demonstrations all over Europe. Uh, labor in Europe gets it. And they get what they get is a point that uh, Steve made in his lecture yesterday, that when there is a loss in the economy and uh, a, a capital a deficit, it has to be made up out of labor, uh, labor's fees. So what you're having in Europe is a labor squeeze. Uh, in Latvia, uh, I was told that uh, the central bank uh, had squeezed the economy so much that private sector, uh, that public sector wages had fallen by 30%. And they said, this is, we're almost where we want to go. You know, another 10% will do it. And the idea is uh, that uh, private sector wages will follow suit by creating enough unemployment. Uh, when the Greek uh, crisis came, Greece was told, why can't you be like Latvia? Latvia has become the poster child of neoliberalism. And it's having its uh, elections, uh, parliamentary elections today. I just got a note uh, f uh, saying that the uh, four uh, right-wing parties have joined together to promise to uh, support the International Monetary Fund's program of closing down the schools. Half the schools have been closed down. Uh, half the doctors have been told to emigrate. One-third of Latvian labor between 20 and 35 uh, was uh, essentially plans to emigrate. 
where can it go? Uh, because all of Europe is now being uh, told to follow the same system. And the figure of 30% decline in public sector wages is used explicitly by uh, the European Union on Wednesday in Brussels on the day of the anti-austerity strike. Uh, the European Union uh, 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 Commission passed uh, a, a ruling saying governments that do not cut their budgets, governments that raise their uh, uh, public debt over 60% of GDP will be fined uh, 0.1 or 2% of GDP per year to force them to follow the uh, cutbacks of the public sector uh, to close down social spending. And the reason is there is not enough money to support living standards and pay the debts growing exponentially as they accrue arrears and late fees. Uh, and so somebody has to give, and it's going to be 99.8% of the population that's giving in Europe, uh, supporting the 0.2% of the population that is uh, concentrating all of the financial wealth in its own hands. Uh, the question is, where is labor going to go? Uh, a few months ago uh, in Latvia, uh, some of you are here who are with me, uh, we uh, talked to the bank examiners, and the bank examiner said, uh, yes, Dr. Hudson, we realize that uh, the system you describe is unstable, that of course there's going to be a, a real estate uh, turned down at some point, and uh, our job is to maintain the solvency of the banks. So we've told the banks, forget about securing your mortgage loans by the value of the property. Get your parents, your children, your uncles, your aunts, your nieces and nephews, get them all to sign. So if you can't pay, the whole uh, family, the clan, has a choice. Either emigrate en masse or spend your life in debt peonage. Uh, one of the candidates for the uh, 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 leading party, the Harmony uh, Coalition, uh, announced uh, to Sweden, where most of the banks are, that uh, it, they had no intention of uh, subver subordinating the economy uh, to neo-feudalism, that they'd thrown off Swedish control militarily 200 years ago, and they were not going to let Sweden achieve, by financial means, what the armies were not able to achieve 200 years ago. So today you have a situation where what used to be military conquest, conquering the land by military force and appropriating it on a hereditary basis, is now being done financially and peacefully. With much less overhead, the objective is still to obtain the land, but it's to obtain it by lending and foreclosure and then emptying out the country. And that is what's happening in not only in Latvia, it's happening in Iceland, uh, it's happening in uh, all of the countries of Europe uh, that are being neoliberalized. Yesterday I met with a lawyer here in Chicago who said there is uh, the most rapidly growing community in Chicago is the Lithuanian community. Uh, Lithuania is the only country in Europe whose GDP has uh, plunged more rapidly than Latvia's. I think 25% in the last year. Uh, and uh, again, Lithuania, uh, Estonia, and Latvia are the three Baltic states that uh, rely primarily on uh, Swedish uh, banks uh, that have come in and essentially they've created the credit that has enabled uh, Latvia to get the foreign exchange and uh, the Baltics to get the foreign exchange that have covered their trade deficits. Uh, with Europe. Now, in one sense, this makes the Baltics and the post-Soviet economies the most, uh, uh, the line of least resistance to uh, recreate 
what uh, used to be uh, the savings bank, savings and loan, 100% reserve system here. There are very few domestic Latvian banks. When you go into a country where the banks are all foreign-owned, it's very easy to say, look, uh, the debts can't be paid, we're going to have a debt write-down, because you don't have a domestic vested interests of bankers to fight you, saying we're not taking a loss, make labor pay. Uh, in this case, uh, it's the foreign banks that'll take a loss. So it's open to the post-Soviet economies to do today what they could have done back uh, after 1991 when the Soviet Union fell apart and follow exactly the kind of 100% uh, reserve uh, planning with the government supplying the uh, credit to the commercial bank, domestic commercial banks, to lend out. So one of the things that we're recommending to the incoming government, assuming it's going to win, is going to be uh, doing what uh, essentially was done in Japan, the Soviet Union, and other countries, uh, uh, create a government bank through uh, a postal savings bank. In Russia and Japan, the largest bank is not a commercial bank, it's the government's postal savings bank. Uh, these are rural banks. They function essentially like savings banks used to uh, in the United States. Uh, the government uh, itself can create uh, the credit, uh, turn them over to uh, provide uh, the local banks uh, as financial intermediaries. Uh, the system uh, that faces such a vested interest of commercial bankers here will not uh, face uh, such an array of vested interests uh, over in uh, the Baltic states. Uh, if you don't do that, you're going to have the debt overhead growing at such a high rate uh, that the result will be economic parasitism beyond the ability of the economy to pay. Now, uh, when we were discussing the mathematical model yesterday, uh, we we're talking about the key turning point is where the, in the uh, increase in debt uh, exceeds the increase in capital gains. It's the point at which uh, an exponentially growing economy cannot pay debt out of capital gains that is borrowing the interest to pay. Uh, that's the point at which all of a sudden there's an insolvency and things go down. That's why I don't like the term business cycle. It's not a cycle, as you found in Schumpeter's work. It's a ratchet effect, up, down, very quick collapse, up, very quick collapse. We're in a collapse now, uh, and it's a long collapse. Uh, uh, last week, the Federal Reserve announced that uh, the recession ended in uh, June of 2009. Well, obviously, it didn't end because uh, unemployment's going up, wages are falling. If you walk down any uh, of the main shopping streets in New York City, you see that there are uh, one empty shop after another around the New York University area where I walked uh, last week. Uh, half of the stores on 8th Street, their big shopping street, uh, have been uh, either emptied out or they're padlocked with a landlord in possession note. Uh, the stores are closing down, the retail malls are closing down, the public has stayed out of the stock market, and it's all being kept uh, alive basically by the Fed's uh, cash for trash uh, uh, swaps uh, with the bank. So it's on artificial life support. Uh, this is not a recovery. At least what is being recovered is not the kind of economy that people thought economies were after World War II. What's being recovered is really the creation of something new. It's the creation of a new power elite uh, for the next century, and it's the elite who are the recipients of the bailout. Not only the TARP bailout, 
But the uh, AIG bailout that went uh, ultimately to Wall Street, uh, the bail, uh, the uh, $2 trillion uh, swap, uh, trash for cash swap that the Federal Reserve has engaged with the uh, 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 commercial banks, uh, and the enormous giveaway. What has been uh, given away is the largest uh, transfer of uh, economic assets since the railroad land barons were given the land in the 19th century. And nobody's seen this. The government says that in order to have the economy work, you have to have a solvent financial system, meaning you have to keep, keep the existing stockholders growing at the rate they've been accustomed to, meaning you have to lower American wage standards by 30% over the next decades, or else the banks will not survive in their present form. The Obama administration says, no question, lower the wage standards. Uh, and that is the program on which he is running. It's the program on which the Republicans are running. It's a bipartisan program to reduce America's standards by keeping the debts in place way beyond the uh, ability to pay. And if you want to see what the future is, look at Iceland over the last two years. Uh, look at uh, Latvia, look at the Baltics. Uh, these were dress rehearsals uh, in a great political experiment to see how far can you reduce living standards before labor fights back politically. They've put the class war back in interest, back uh, into uh, practice with a vengeance. And this is a class war, and the other class doesn't even know that there is a war on. And this is uh, a we could say this is an evolution from economic parasitism to biological parasitism. Uh, many of you uh, have been talking about banks being parasitic and extracting interest. Uh, that's only a little bit of what parasites do in nature. Uh, that's uh, the obvious uh, strategy is, of course, you want to siphon off the host's uh, nourishment for yourself. You want to uh, take uh, uh, the economic wealth and transfer it into your own pockets. But you can't just do it like you used to do, with a gun or with horses, or uh, like the Norman invaders did it, or like uh, Pizarro uh, did it in uh, uh, Latin America. Uh, you have to uh, do it in a, uh, a way that numbs the host from seeing that uh, there, uh, there is a parasite on it. So in nature, the parasites uh, have a chemical that does two things. They have a chemical that immediately deadens the uh, host from seeing that the parasite is on him and is biting him. Uh, but most of all, the parasites also produce an enzyme that take over the brain of the host. And this enzyme <laughs> makes the host believe that the parasite is part of its own body and in fact in instinctively should be taken care of as if the parasite were the, were the child of the host. And that's what we're seeing today. You have Mr. Obama acting as a parasitized brain, saying we have to take care of the financial sector in order to make the, uh, the labor and the industrial sector grow. And by grow, of course, he means shrink. Uh, and in order for you to have jobs, but he means lose your job, uh, you have to keep the debts in place, growing exponentially uh, at a rate which uh, is mathematically impossible because any rate of interest is a doubling time uh, implicitly. So the question is, how are you going to keep the wealth of the richest 10% of America's population grow doubling every uh, 10 years or so when the economy is shrinking? 
you can figure out that somebody is going to have to be parasitized here, and that's the function of the Democratic Party, of the Republican Party. They've got their man in the government uh, who tells them all it's all for the best. This is what a smart parasite would do in biological nature. They, they, uh, they really make uh, the host believe that he's uh, acting on be that the parasite has to be protected. Uh, now, basically, this doesn't work forever either because obviously if you simply uh, keep tricking the host, the host is going to die. So in nature, the biology has the parasite become symbiotic with the host and actually help him find food. He says, look, I'm hungry. I'm bigger than you are. I'm growing as a big tumor on you, but there's some food over there. Look, I'm, I'm going to steer you. So you have sharks being steered by pilot fish. You have all sorts of parasites helping uh, the host uh, sort of uh, get what they want. This is a stage that the American financial system has not yet entered. Uh, the financial, it's a stage that uh, German uh, entered in the late 19th century. It's a stage that Japan uh, entered uh, after 1945. And Japan and Germany had a virtue. They didn't have ready cash to lend out. They didn't, the, the banks were not able to create interest-bearing debt uh, as a loan. So what they did was provide credit against uh, the equity ownership in the firms. And the result was the Japanese economy was uh, knitted together with uh, cross-holdings where the bank's interest was actually that of its customers. There was no other way in which Japan could have grown and survived that way. Uh, and all that happened, uh, you know the result, was the, the great Japanese takeoff until 1985. There was a problem, uh, though, and that is that Japan was conquered by MacArthur, uh, who uh, said, look, if we're going to defeat the communists, there's only one uh, idealism, one social structure that can demeet, defeat communism, the mafia. Uh, MacArthur put in, uh, he took the criminal organizations of Japan, armed them to fight against the socialists, to fight against the communists, and had enough criminals in charge of Japanese industry so that uh, they would be completely dependent on the Americans. The Americans could always go to the Japanese and say, if you don't do what we want you to do, we're going to expose who you are. And uh, uh, they had a hold over them. Now, uh, this was first explained to me when I visited Nippon Steel in 1973 with Herman Kahn. And uh, it was very funny. Uh, we went out with the chairman of the company and uh, the top management. And uh, we all went out for sake and had a big dinner. And everybody wanted to begin. Uh, they said, well, you know, we, we sing uh, songs from our childhood. So he sang a song that he'd learned. Uh, Herman sang a song that he knew, I guess, Hava Legila, or one of the nationalist uh, terrorist songs that he knew. And uh, the only song that uh, I remembered was the International. Well, uh, and, no, it was Working Men Unite. We must put up a fight to make us free from slavery and capitalistic tyranny. It was, I remember my mother over the ironing board singing that song, and I thought that would be a nice uh, song to indicate, uh, my, make it a convivial evening. Well, the man who, uh, the head of Nippon Steel, I think was a former general, he looked, he, very peaceful, like a Buddhist almost, a calm face. All of a sudden, his face hardened into utter hate. And there was another man, the vice president of Nippon Steel, who looked like a, a really frightening guy, a very spherical head, who just sort of glowered, you know, I thought, is he the bodyguard or what? All of a sudden, his face turned into a sunbeam of 
peacefulness and happiness. He put his arm around me and said, you know, I'm the number two man. Uh, my job is for when uh, we break from America, I'm the guy to develop the relations with China. So uh, the good thing about Japan is they always have option number two. <laughs> uh, that's what uh, we're trying. Uh, uh, that's what we're trying to work on uh, in China uh, today. Uh, I go back and forth uh, uh, frequently to China uh, now. Uh, we need uh, option uh, number two, and we have to realize that the alternative to uh, uh, socialism. Uh, you had a replay of all of this in the Soviet Union, where the uh, neoliberals pushed forth uh, a criminalized group of privatizers from Russia to the Baltics to Central Asia. Uh, they said, okay, we're going to give the top officials ownership of the property. That'll be a vested interest in uh, not only uh, fighting communism, but in, uh, so in financializing the economy. And by financializing their economy, that they meant privatization on credit. And this privatization is what banks have been lending out uh, the money for for the last uh, 30 years, really since 1980. From Latin America to Asia to uh, Africa, it's essentially to uh, lend uh, foreign companies the money to buy uh, the, the uh, public infrastructure uh, from uh, the government uh, at a price where people bid each other and they bid to pay everything that they can extract from the economy by the infrastructure, by raising the telephone rates, by raising the road rates, by turning the economy into a toll booth, is going to be paid to the banks uh, as interest. And so there's a, a kind of perverse symbiosis between the privatizers and the banks, uh, enforced by the World Bank and the IMF, and by the rule that uh, companies can deduct their interest charges from their uh, income tax liability. And that means that uh, they can, uh, in Iceland, for instance, uh, Iceland made a deal uh, that uh, they're trying to prosecute now with Alcan, where uh, Alcan will share its profits uh, with uh, the Icelandic government. Well, when you make a deal with a multinational for profit sharing, this is like Hollywood accounting. There aren't any profits because uh, the, uh, the parent company will set up a financing affiliate that will say, how much are the earnings? We will make a loan to uh, the affiliate of a high enough uh, value so that uh, the interest payments on the loan will exactly absorb all of the earnings and we will not have to pay any income tax to the company at all. That's why Australia was proposing a 40% uh, 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 resource rent tax there. Uh, it's what uh, uh, I'm trying to propose uh, in a number of Asian countries uh, right now. The uh, issue is the issue is what is a public utility? And, I'm gonna, uh, and that uh, essentially, you should look at this as if the banking system and the financial system is a public utility. The first professor of economics at the America's first business school, the Wharton School of Economics, was Simon Patton in the 1880s. And Simon Patton, obviously the business school was set up to promote business. Uh, uh, Patton, like almost uh, all the other members, uh, founding members of the American Economic Association, had studied in Germany. Not in England, but in Germany. And uh, they had, uh, uh, Patton wrote that the uh, cla uh, classical economics, they learned, did not end with John Stuart Mill. It ended with Henry George and Karl Marx. And that is what traumatized 
the economics profession to turn away from classical uh, economics and to go to uh, essentially what became anti-classical neo-economics, which of course they call neoliberal because that's what a parasite does on part of your body. Uh, so a patent said, uh, the, uh, what is the return to a public utility? Uh, and he said, uh, it's not profit, as in the case of private investment. It's not income. Uh, a public utility should be uh, valued by the amount by which it lowers the cost of living and doing business. It's supposed to reduce, make the economy more competitive by taking more and more services out of the marketplace. A free road is not in the marketplace. Uh, uh, public health. Uh, retirement uh, pensions. These are not part of the marketplace. The objective of enlightened capitalism in the, n America in the late 19th century was to move beyond the, uh, the uh, market economy and essentially to produce what uh, John Maynard Keynes gently called euthanasia of the rentier. And in uh, the years before World War I, everybody believed that the era of the rentier was out. Uh, Europe's medieval uh, period had seen its lands conquered by force, uh, taken over by an aristocracy. Europe had then colonized uh, Latin America and carved out parts of Asia. The idea was that all this was to be in the past just as much as banking was to be in the past. And they were going to have national banking as a public utility. Uh, instead, uh, the rentiers have fought back. They've uh, taken over in a way that nobody expected, and they are trying to bring what was supposed to be the post-market economy back into the market economy in a way that is financialized so that the entire economic surplus is to be cap uh, capitalized into bank loans and paid out as interest. In other words, this is not the kind of wealth of nations that, Al that uh, Adam Smith was talking about. It's the kind of wealth that Alan Greenspan's talking about. Uh, how much of corporate pro can a corporation pay uh, in interest payments to the junk bondholders and the corporate raiders to which our banks are lending money uh, so that they can uh, load the economy down with debt? And Greenspan said, look, this is, uh, we're stabilizing the economy in a way that none of you have realized. This was the great moderation. Greenspan testified before Congress and said, uh, you may notice that despite the fact that profits are going up, investments going up, asset prices are going up, wages are not going up. And why aren't they going up? Because labor is afraid to go on strike because it's one paycheck away from defaulting on its mortgage. If it meets one bank payment, its payments on its credit cards are going to be tripled, the interest payments. It'll be subject to late fees. We've got them. We've stabilized them. We've killed the labor force. That became the Obama program. That became the Clinton program. Uh, they embraced this, and that's what the uh, Democratic Party or the Labor Party in England or the Socialist Party in Spain is for. Their, their job is to double-cross their constituency and to sell out labor to the, uh, their main campaign contributors. Uh, which in Amer uh, the Democratic Party's case is Wall Street, just as it is for the Republican uh, Party. So uh, you have essentially the whole economy transforming the idea of what the wealth of nations is all about, what productive credit is all about, the idea that an economy should be the market under conditions where the entire surplus is uh, pledged for interest. If you're a bank loan officer and you have a company come to you, your objective is to have that company pay all its cash flow 
in interest by lending the company enough money to go out and buy other companies, lending the company enough money to uh, buy back its own stock, so there are huge loans for stock buybacks, lend the company enough money to just simply pay out in dividends. This was Elkman's plan to uh, uh, take over uh, McDonald's. He was going to cut McDonald's into the property-owning uh, land own, uh, property-owning sector and the uh, uh, food-like substance-producing uh, company, and uh, basically uh, borrow money, pay out his dividends, and pay himself uh, a huge uh, stock option. Uh, this this is the very definition of parasitism in nature. Uh, and so I think that the way in which you want to pr uh, promote your idea of the Chicago plan and 100% reserves is to raise the issue that should be paramount over all others. What should a government create credit for? And what do the commercial banking systems uh, today create credit for? Uh, and if you define the credit creation of the commercial banking system as acting to inflate asset prices at a high enough rate to enable the borrowers to recapitalize uh, the loan at a higher level and uh, borrow the interest, then you have uh, almost a definition of financial instability. Uh, and it won't work. And you have to explain to people that uh, the, uh, the surplus is going to require more and more of a wage squeeze, more and more uh, of a transfer of income coming out of their, pro their pockets, and it will turn the economy away from a productive uh, production and consumption economy into a toll booth economy. Here in Chicago, as uh, you all know, they're uh, privatizing the streets and the sidewalks to put parking meters. Uh, we took a walk down the uh, parking, to, uh, parking meter tour uh, uh, the other day uh, to turn uh, the Dan Ryan Expressway and others into toll roads. Essentially, it's to, uh, to do to the American economy what the Norman conquerors did to England uh, in the 13th century. All they had to take was the land. Today, they can take all of the vast Ex, uh, expenditure in public infrastructure that's been built up and uh, essentially put toll booths on it uh, to use uh, the phones, uh, the internet, uh, the roads, uh, the school system where you now have to pay a high tuition as in Latvia where you didn't used to have to, to put a pay uh, so that everybody's uh, income is going to pay economic rent, not uh, wages or profits. Uh, and you have a academic economic system that doesn't teach the history of economic thought anymore, so the history, the very concept of economic rent is wiped out. The theory is that everybody gets what they uh, earn, uh, that everything is productive as long as you can pay the banker. Uh, and th this is what you have to raise uh, the level of abstraction and discussion to if you want to get uh, widespread support uh, beyond your immediate members. system that the Chinese have is built on very different foundations. So, uh, but you seem to be saying they are a more solid foundation. Could you flash that out a little bit more and say... Their, their problems are different from the United States. Uh, one, it's ironic that uh, their revolution was essentially uh, Marxist in nature, but I have never met an official from any Marxist country that has ever read Marx. As a matter of fact, I grew up, and I think I can say that I've known every socialist leader in America uh, in the 40s and 50s, 
All, they all had capital on their bookshelves. Not a single one had ever opened it or read it. Because I, I, when I was like five or six years old, I'd go to the book, you know, I'd go to what I recognized that never been opened. Uh, and the fact is that uh, when China began to privatize and sell off the land, uh, it said, well, we want to uh, turn over the land and have it developed and build up buildings. And so what we're going to do is uh, uh, we're going to uh, collect the rent 80 years in advance and all in one one swipe but all they can afford is like a hundred dollars so we're going to uh, essentially they got they confused uh, taxing rent with a transfer of property ownership the trans the deed should have been sold for the notary price of eighty eighty dollars but then subject to an increase in the land tax and what I'm advocating for China is that the way to prevent a property bubble is to tax the uh, the free rent uh, as you, your property increases in value with the uh, prosperity of the economy this is going to increase the rental value of the land as you've seen now and, uh, and in villages in China uh, you have uh, a decentralized system where local mayors are quickly putting up buildings so the government will have to pay them to tear them down to return it to agricultural land. This is what's happening. So what I would say was uh, let them uh, develop the land. The deal will be the, the uh, government will collect the rental value of the land. That's the Henry George plan. Uh, we never use the word there because uh, uh, but it's essentially the John, we use the word John Stuart Mill, uh, Adam Smith, uh, Thorstein Veblen. Uh, but that, that essentially is what uh, the plan is. And uh, if the government does not collect the rent, then it's uh, pledged to the bank as interest, and the bank will lend against it. So prices are going up in China because the banks are lending against the rental value that the government is failing to collect. And that's why I said at the beginning, you need a fiscal reform with your financial reform. If you have the fiscal reform of taxing the land's rental value and the economic rent of infrastructure and other sectors, then you will not leave the surplus available for the banks to capitalize into a bank loan, turning the rent into interest payments. That should be uh, the objective. And that's why uh, we reject uh, the Henry George uh, theory so thoroughly because uh, they say you should only tax land, uh, don't do any other reform. Uh, the whole model of the Henry George uh, movement is that of the neoclassical model. The whole economy works on barter. Money in credit is uh, really just embodied labor. It's a goofy uh, model. And uh, the problem is that the only people uh, organized who are pushing the fiscal policy we have are these nuts on the right-wing uh, part of the spectrum. So we've had to create uh, an entirely new constituency for land tax on the left-wing part of the uh, spectrum in the social democratic and essentially to reintroduce uh, the land tax as it originally was introduced by John Stuart Mill and others as a socialist policy and it's likely that this will be in countries like China uh, not in Nazi Germany where the Georgists uh, uh, put most of their effort in 1926 and uh, in America where they push it, pushed uh, uh, ultra right wing uh, uh, causes. Hello. Um, hi. Um, I loved your presentation. This, uh, my response is, we heard from England about positive money, uh, you know, this very constructive strategy. But when I listen to you, I mean, every American is furious at the banks. I mean, you talk to any of them. So how do you use this anger 
to, in our strategy because it, it's difficult to approach people with just the anger. Okay, if you, this is what happened, uh, I guess, in the uh, 1984 uh, presidential campaign where uh, if a government lets a serial rapist out uh, of a bank and he rapes somebody, uh, people didn't get angry at uh, the rapist, they got angry at the Democratic presidential candidate, uh, the little man in the tank. I forget his name. Uh, uh, the idea is to get the, say, look, bankers are always going to be parasites. If they're parasites, that's what a parasite does. Uh, you get them angry at the sponsor of the parasite, at the Obama administration, at the Republican administration. You say, look, we've been lied to. We've been tricked by a really clever, uh, uh, deceptive, uh, demagogue, and uh, we're going to throw the guys out, and you're going to, ha uh, the only way to change this is by a political, to politicize the movement, not as an intellectual monetary reform movement, but as a political movement, saying that Democrats and Republicans are in the hands of the bankers, and the job of the Democrats is uh, when uh, people get tired of saying yes, you're going to have a party that comes in and says yes, please. Uh, well, now you have it complicated. You have the, uh, uh, the Tea Party saying, yes, thank you. And so that really is how the whole election is being triangulated here. Uh, yes, yes, please, and yes, thank you. It would be nice to have a fourth alternative. And that's the only way you'll get the monetary reform. One, one more question, and uh, Dr. Hudson will, Professor Hudson will be available in a panel this afternoon for further questions. I have a little bit of can't hear you. Can't hear you. How much of the productivity that the Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve keeps telling us about is, is real? Aha! Very good point. Uh, the 19th century... Uh, I, I've just republished the book. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> if you can hand me the book, I'll hold it up. <laughs> I'll strangulate it there. Uh, America's Protectionist Takeoff summarizes the American school of uh, political economy. The whole uh, idea of uh, America as a new civilization was to be uh, the, hi the high-wage economy. Uh, the idea that high-wage labor undersells pauper labor because well-fed, well-clothed, well-educated labor is high-productivity labor. So, uh, Steve, uh, I would add to the uh, formulas that Steve Keen put in before another formula, the change in the productivity rate relative to the change in the uh, wage rate. Uh, uh, under the American system, the idea was uh, to, in, to protect American industry by tariffs that would provide industrialists with enough uh, money to uh, increase uh, productivity by enough to pay high wages. And essentially, Erasmus Peshine-Smith, who outlined the Republican Party program in 1853 when it was formed, though quite different Republicans from what we have today, uh, was that uh, capital productivity and labor productivity was a function of energy use per worker. Uh, joules per uh, essentially uh, thermal units, uh, or however you want to measure energy per worker. And uh, as late as the 1930s, the technocratic movement here, that also was into monetary reform, followed the energy, the energy per worker uh, growth. And it was the uh, increase in uh, uh, labor productivity that enabled uh, the debts to grow exponentially in keeping. 
Uh, under Greenspan, you have a different kind of productivity. Today, for the first time in modern history, you have rising productivity with lower wages. And that is a result of financial management. And what they've done is uh, shrink the labor force and keep, while uh, the labor force has been shrinking, you keep output uh, steady by forcing the uh, remaining workers to pick up the jobs of the people who are losing. So you're working labor more intensively. You're promoting labor from blue-collar labor ostensibly to managers who you don't have to pay overtime for and telling them work overtime or be fired. And as Greenspan pointed out, if you're fired, your uh, credit card uh, rate goes up and you default on your mortgage and you lose your home. Uh, so uh, today, the raise in productivity is simply working labor more intensively uh, and essentially burning them out. It's the burnout theory of labor, the antithesis of the economy of high wages, and America today is in the burnout theory. They're firing, uh, uh, if they do have a cost of living increase, uh, they're firing labor uh, and replacing it with uh, unskilled labor. So essentially, there's a race to the bottom today, and the statistics call that a, rate, a rise in productivity. Uh, but it's a fake productivity. It's, uh, uh, it, it's not uh, anything like people used to think of as labor productivity at all. So that uh, the delta wages over the delta productivity uh, is, has to be a key element of any uh, economic financial model. Okay, we're going to have another hour and a half of this in the afternoon. Um, you're saying that basically that it's whatever the system is after the banks have created the money, they are the beneficiary. It's coming back to them. That's the idea. It's yeah. profit. They said it's important. Yeah, actually, they, they call that self-interest. Okay. But the, the assumption of all economics is that everybody acts in their self-interest. That isn't happening today. You only have the parasite acting in the self-interest, not the uh, host host. Uh, and you only have America acting in its self-interest internationally, not other countries. So the prime assumption of economics and political theory is being violated today. You have to educate the economy to reestablish the assumption of this fictitious uh, theory that's uh, uh, put forth in the universities. Have you identified the banking system as the parasite? Yes. You've been listening to Michael Hudson speaking at the American Monetary Institute on November 9th, 2010. If you'd like to know more about Michael Hudson and his writings, you can visit his website. It's michael-hudson.com. That's Michael with a dash in between and then Hudson, H-U-D-S-O-N.com. Many thanks to the American Monetary Institute and Michael Hudson for making this recording available. Hope you've enjoyed this. If you did, uh, you can check out Politics and Science at Radio4All.net. That's Radio4ALL.net for some podcasts of Politics and Science. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions for Politics and Science, you can direct them by email to politicsandscience at madriver.com. That's politicsandscience at madriver.com. Politics and Science presents the viewpoints of its participants and does not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of any other person or organization.